Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you here. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're glad to have you gathered with us this morning as Stephen is away. Thank you, Brad and Brooke, for jumping in and covering. Stephen is, yeah. Thank you, guys. Stephen is in Georgia with his, if you didn't know, Stephen's a part of a band called Flipside, and they're actually kind of working on an album right now, and so he's in Georgia at, at um, a recording studio doing that, and so he will be back with us next week. But I won't be back next week. We're actually going to be stepping away for a few weeks. It's been a couple years, really, since we've been able to kind of step away with COVID and all the challenges and fun opportunities we've had over the last Last year or so, uh, God has strengthened us, he's tested us, he's molded us, and now he's going to give us a little rest. And so I'm excited. Jonah is going to be preaching, and also our youth pastor, Dan, is also going to be preaching over the next couple weeks, and so it'll be good to, uh, to hear both of them and allow them to step in. And um, anyways, we'll miss you guys. We'll be back uh, in August. It'll be good to see you. Hopefully, you'll still be here. <laughs> don't, don't go nowhere, Okay. Anyways, we love you guys. Hey, we're in Matthew chapter 10. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in uh, Matthew 10. It was funny this week as I was studying this passage, I kind of thought to myself, okay, this is the passage I'm going to study before I go on vacation. This wasn't an easy passage to walk through, but there's, there's a real comfort in this and what Jesus is teaching us in chapter 10. Because see, what's happened is Jesus has gathered his disciples, the twelve. It's kind of narrowed down the closest followers, and they're sitting before him, and as they're sitting there, he's telling them what's about to happen. In some ways, it's like Jesus is looking into the book of Acts, and he's going to tell them, hey, guys, these are the things you're going to face. And I could imagine, I imagine what they're, when they heard these words, how they reacted, what was the expression on their face. Because see, to this point, Jesus is pretty popular, I mean, the crowds love him, and because they love Jesus, they love the disciples, there hasn't been a lot of conflict. The religious leaders are not real high on Jesus, but at this point, the crowds love him, and, and I imagine for the disciples, they're, gonna, they're assuming we're just going to go right up to the CEO, we're going to just kind of move right up into positions of power, we're going to be sitting at Jesus' left and right in Jerusalem, things are going great, this party is going well, and then chapter 10 hits. And in chapter 10, Jesus is looking in their future and says, guys, you know, I know you've enjoyed walking with me to this point, but great persecution's gonna come. That I'm gonna send you out and you're gonna share the same message and you're gonna have the same power and authority and yet people are gonna react negatively to what you say. In fact, you're gonna create division. Division within relationships, division in the world. People are going to reject you and hate you. You may find your family members take issue with you because of what you believe. And he prepares us for that reality that the gospel is offensive. And how do we respond to a world that may be offended at the gospel? And how do we navigate in life when sometimes there's a great cost to following Jesus? And certainly for the disciples, that cost was pretty imminent, it was physical, so it was a reality that they would experience in the near future. But as we follow Christ, we may not experience the same level of conflict, certainly not to the degree of being taken in front of 
courts and kings and leaders. We may not have our children turning us over to the authorities or our parents rejecting us, but trusting in Jesus and saying, you know what? He's my Lord. He's my God. He is the primary value of my heart. That's going to create conflicts in relationships, in how we view the world, and how we engage in our values in the world. It creates conflict. How do you, how do you navigate that? Well, that's what chapter 10 is about. And it's our opportunity to look into a private discussion he's having with his disciples. And I want you to know, not everything Jesus says in chapter 10 will happen to us, thankfully. It has happened over human history, but it may not happen in the same way to us. It's really us stepping into a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples and learning from that. How do we engage in the world when things start to go the wrong direction because of my faith? How do I respond? How do I see God at work? And where do I put my trust? So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 16. The word of the Lord. Verse 16, and behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so be wise as serpents. Be innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you speak or what you are to say. For what you were to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Now brother will deliver brother over to death. The father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you have not gone throughout the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you have heard whispered, I want you to proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. And so fear not. You are of more value than they. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Because see, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. 
All thanks be to God. Father, would you guide us? Lord, as we navigate these words, they're they're challenging, they're shocking at times, frightening. A son would betray his father. The world would hate us, that we cannot love our father and mother more than you. We must hate our father. These words are challenging for us as we wrestle with what does it mean to see you as our Lord, as our King, as our God. Father, guide us into this truth. And as we engage in a world that rejects the gospel, Lord, help us to walk both with compassion but also wisdom and, and knowing how to respond. And so teach us, Father, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a lot. Too much before vacation, right? It's like a little bit too much. You gotta hate your father and mother? That seems kind of, doesn't it seem a little extreme? The world will hate you because of me. How do you navigate those words? Because see, chapter nine was about compassion. Where'd that compassion go? Because see, as Jesus looks at the world, he looks at the world in compassion. He sees us as sheep without a shepherd. He sees sin just not as much as just what we do. It's also what, what enslaves us. And Jesus has come to set the captive free. And so how do we navigate this idea that Jesus wants us to move out in the world in compassion, and yet the world may reject us? And sometimes the world would reject us harshly. I mean, the words that are here are words that what, of what the disciples experienced. They were betrayed. Many of the disciples were martyred. Throughout church history, there have been stories of family members turning against family members. In North Korea today, it still happens. In certain areas in the Middle East, in China, these things have happened. In Russia, under the Iron Curtain, family members would turn against family. How how is that a part of what God has planned for us? And then how how do we navigate that? You know, if we're going to stand for the gospel, there will be places of conflict. And so what I want to do, and the verse I want to jump into first is verse 34. It was the one that kind of stood out to me. Because see, in verse 34, Jesus says, don't think I've come to bring peace on earth. And I'm like, wait a minute. We sang about that at Christmas. You did, didn't you? I mean, peace on earth, guys, right? Today unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we're like, yes, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. He will be called the Prince of Peace, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. As you trust in God, trust also in me. Right? Peace, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what are you going to get? Peace. What is he saying? He hasn't come to bring us peace. He's told us over and over, over and over, I've come to bring peace. But he's saying in verse 34, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. That's a challenge. See, the peace that Jesus offers us, it comes through the sword, but it also comes with a sword. See, the peace that Jesus offers us, it's not a peace free from conflict. If if you're looking for a peace that's free from conflict, that's not the Christian life. Because really what this passage is about is three types of conflict. That when Jesus is your Lord, he's your allegiance, When you seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all things will be given to you. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you do not serve money, but you recognize, I am a slave to one master, therefore you cannot serve both God and money. 
When you put Jesus first, what happens is it's going to create conflicts. And those conflicts, as I look at this passage, are kind of in three main areas, conflicts with people in authority. The way that Christians relate to power is very different from the way that the world relates to power, and that makes people in power very upset when we don't follow along with their agendas. And then second, the the next area you see these conflicts is in relationships, right? I mean, brother, sister, father, mother, there's this conflict that when you put Jesus first in in, in your life, it's gonna create conflicts in your relationships. And then finally, and I think this is the big picture, when Jesus is your Lord, it creates conflicts in your own heart. Because see, throughout this passage, he's saying, don't be afraid. I know as you're looking out on a world that's persecuting you, you see a storyline and you think you know where the storyline's going, but no, the Father's in control, the Spirit is, is leading you. Don't trust what you see, trust in me, trust in what I'm doing. So what does it mean that, that Jesus has come to bring a sword? Now, first of all, realize when he says, he hasn't come to bring peace but a sword, the peace that Jesus brings is through the sword. See, when you go back in verse seven of chapter 10, he says, here's the message I've come to bring. The kingdom of God is is here. And so repent. Now, if the kingdom of God is here, what that means is Jesus is the king. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord, what he's saying is, guys, everything you see belongs to me. It's mine. I'm the creator. From the furthest galaxy all the way down to the supremacy of your own life and heart, everything belongs to me. And when Jesus said, I've come to bring the sword, he's saying, guys, I've come to finish the fight. I've come to finish that which is enslaving human beings. See, Jesus' fight wasn't against humanity. His fight was for humanity, to rescue humanity from that which truly enslaved us. And so how did Jesus win that battle? Was it through violence So what's this sword, right? Let's wrestle with that. What's that sword mean? Is it violence? Did you see Jesus doing violence to people, to nations? No. The primary expression of Jesus' warfare is to become human. It was humility. We haven't lost compassion. Remember chapter nine, chapter 10, compassion, that whole thing being, he hasn't lost it because see his primary weapons of warfare were weakness. Jesus didn't run into Jerusalem as a king on a throne. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey as a servant king that would die on behalf of those that rejected him. See, the sword that Jesus went through was the sword of his own death. I don't know if you remember this, the story of Adam and Eve. They kind of disobeyed God and they were cast out of the garden. You remember what was blocking the way back into God's presence? It was a sword. The only way into God's presence is through the sword. But see, Jesus is the one who went through the sword for us. And he's saying, to give you peace, I had to go through the sword. But how did he do it? He did it through love, compassion, and self-sacrifice. We haven't let those themes go. But see, the second reality is though he's brought us peace through the sword, he's also brought a sword with him. And what that means is conflict. That when Jesus is Lord, it will create conflicts in your life. I mean, it creates, come on, let's be honest, it creates conflicts in me. Because see, if Jesus is Lord, then he's telling me, okay, Jason, listen, you don't get to decide how this body works. You don't get to decide what fills your head. I do. And I want you to submit to me. I want you not just to submit. Do you notice what he said at the end of this passage? It's kind of strong language. I want you to die to me. 
I want you to, to find life is to lose it, right? Which means, Jason, the ordinary way you think about finding life, that's not gonna work now because I'm your king. And see, if Jesus is the rightful king, that means that he is king over all things. That brings conflict, doesn't it? Because that means he can say no. And as we go out into a world to proclaim that Jesus is king, people are gonna say, no, I don't think so. They're not gonna like that message. And then if Jesus is the rightful king, which means all things that belong to him, then truthfully, he is the way and the truth and life. And that's not bigotry, that's, that's reality. And we move out into a world that disagrees with that. And so there's going to be conflict. But he's saying, as I have come to brought peace, but not without conflict. And so there's three areas of conflict. As we look at this passage and jump back in, three areas where we see conflict. The first is with those who are in authority. A Christian's relationship to power, it shifts. And then second, there are conflicts within relationships. That when you put Jesus first in your life, it's gonna create conflicts in, in homes and families and businesses and communities and schools. And then finally, it's going to, and here's the biggest part, if Jesus is Lord, there's gonna be conflicts in your own heart. Conflicts with how you see the world, how you relate to the world, and what you think is most important. So you kind of see that? Conflicts with authority, conflicts and relationships, conflicts within yourself. So let's jump back into it in verse 16 as he begins to describe these conflicts that we're going to experience, first of all, with those who are in authority. So notice verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out, and the metaphor shifts, because before it was Jesus looked out at the world and he saw sheep. And he said they're helpless and they're harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Now he's saying, guys, watch out. You are the sheep. And I'm sending you out to a world that is going to reject what you believe. And so what's the solution? Be wise as serpent and as harmless as doves. Now, many people that don't even know the Bible know that phrase. It's a pretty common phrase. That as you engage a world that's going to reject this message that Jesus is king, here's how I want you to engage. I want you to be as cunning as a serpent, but I want your character and your purity to be as innocent as doves. Because here's what's gonna happen. Verse 17, beware of men for they will deliver you over to the courts. This is exactly what you see happen in the book of Acts. They're gonna flog you. Notice, not just in the courts. Where's it gonna happen? In worship services. That's a little frightening. The religious authorities are gonna turn against you. The civil authorities will turn against you. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. For what purpose? To bear witness to them and to the Gentiles, to bear witness to the gospel that Jesus is king and the way that he has rescued humanity is through his life, death, and resurrection, through his humility and compassion so that he might rise again as king of kings and lord of lords. This is the message that we proclaim. And yet what happens is for people who are in power, they didn't like the gospel. You know that? Read the book of Acts. See what happened when Paul preached the gospel in towns and cities. You know what happened? See, in some communities, they had this, they had economics. I mean, they had the marketplace down. They were selling idols. They were selling these little gods, trinkets that made you feel more masculine, more feminine. You looked better, you looked nicer, felt stronger, felt more beautiful. These little idols and things were, they were selling. And every community had their own gods to worship. And this is what success looks like. 
And there was a whole economy and a whole government built up around the structure of what people were selling you. And guess what? When Jesus became Lord, I guess I don't need that. I don't need those idols. I don't need those symbols of success. I don't need, I don't need those authorities to tell me I'm okay because Jesus is has told me I'm okay. You know what happened? The whole structure of the economy of those communities broke down. Who are they gonna blame? They blame Paul. Because see, when Jesus becomes Lord, money takes second place. And power and authority take second place. And how did Jesus rise to a position where he rescued his people? It wasn't by sitting in positions of power. Remember James and John? Because see, they think Jesus is popular. Hey, we're going into Jerusalem and this thing's gonna be awesome. We wanna sit at your left and right. What does he say? Guys, you have no clue what kind of throne I'm ascending to because my victory will come through my death. Salvation will come through weakness, through laying down my life. Are you ready to do that? See, the relationship a Christian has to power completely changes. And I don't know if you notice this in Christian history, just kind of think with me for a moment. Christianity started in the Middle East, right? And in the first 300 years, after many periods of persecution, the church grew. Then eventually Constantine kind of came around and church got a little power, got a little power. And you know what happened when we got a little power? We moved to a place where we didn't have, we started moving towards the West and to Europe. And as Christianity went along, Christianity went where God was wanted, where, Christ, where people were suffering, where there was brokenness, where there was sin, where there was oppression. Christianity was attractive, often attractive to women because women were oppressed, often attractive to the poor because the poor were oppressed. Christianity started moving wherever there were the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. You remember the story? We're not leaving that behind. The gospel was bearing fruit. And then guess what happened in Europe? They started to take the church and the state and said, hey, let's do this as one. And guess what happened? It went across the sea. These pilgrims came to America, went to other places in the world, went back towards Russia, and Christianity began to flourish in a new country, in a new place, until Christianity once again finds itself in power. And what happens? It moves to China, moves to Iran, moves to Brazil. It moves to places where God is wanted. Why? Because Christianity doesn't do well when it finds positions of power. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a Christian in a place of power and use your influence. But what happens when you're in a place of power? How does power work? It's top down, isn't it? It's getting people in line, setting the laws, setting the agendas, punishing the evil, rewarding the good. How does the kingdom of God work? Guys, it's bottom up. You know how I'm gonna use? Peter, I'm gonna use you. Don't you know there's some better people to use, Jesus? And if you know this, Peter denied Jesus three times, so there's something about denial. It's not exactly. Peter denied him. Peter was weak. Many of the disciples, they were nothing in terms of the power of the world. Why did God use them? Because they, in the end, the story of the gospel was about the power of the gospel in their life, not the power of who they were and what they had. And if you look throughout the whole Old Testament, just kind of do a survey and you notice who God uses in the Old Testament, you know what it starts with? It starts with Abraham. Now, Abraham was kind of cool, kind of significant, but then what begins to happen is it's not the firstborn, it's the secondborn. You ever notice this? Because firstborns have power, secondborns have no power. And then it starts going to the women, and you find these women, Shifra and Pua. You ever heard of those ladies? Pretty, pretty well known. You know, they were nothing, servants. And yet the Lord used them. And throughout Scripture, God raises up people so that 
when they see what had happened, there, there's no explanation, but God is at work. And see, that's how the church flourishes. Where there are the poor in spirit, where there are the meek, where, though, where there are those that are willing to humble themselves and use what they have for the glory of God. Christianity has a weird relationship to power. Because who is the greatest of all? A servant. Servants don't have power. <laughs> And what Jesus calls us is do loss. He calls us servants. He calls us slaves. You cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other. You cannot be devoted to both God and money. See, church, one of the reasons persecution comes is because in positions of power, when Christians show up and they start following Jesus, that power doesn't have authority over them, but rather they start changing the culture without sitting in positions of power. Christianity changes things. When we long for Jesus to be central more than anything else, and now here's the struggle, okay? Here's what, here's what begins to happen, is sometimes things in our life get more greater ascendancy over our heart than Jesus. That things that are good, that are important, you know, when Jesus sent them out, he said, guys, here's the message you're gonna represent, I am king. You're not gonna represent Israel. You're not gonna represent your national sovereignty, though that's valuable and important. You're not gonna represent what you believe. You're not gonna represent what you think is best. You're gonna represent me, which means all of those other things which are important, they have to be second. That's gonna make you look unpatriotic, isn't it? To your neighbors when the Romans come and you start loving the Romans instead of hating the Romans, how's that gonna make you look? Well, how are we engaging in that today? What's most important to us? Is it positions of power or is it reflecting the kingdom and the values of what Jesus did? See, Jesus didn't use those things, but he turned the world upside down to men and women who believed he was Lord. That's the beauty of the gospel, but it's going to put us in conflict with the powers that be. How do we engage in a place like that? We have to be as wise as serpent and as harmless as dove. So watch this in verse 19. So when they deliver you, now, this is the biggest statement of all, don't be anxious. Now, if you realize that your life's at stake, Jesus, I think, I think that's appropriate to be anxious. I know I shouldn't be anxious about tomorrow, but this is today, and my life is at stake. He says, don't be anxious. Now, why? Because, see, when you're in a position under someone of authority and they have your life in your hand, it looks like it's absolute. And he's saying, God is still in control. Because, see, whatever you're gonna say or what you're gonna say, it's gonna be given to you. Verse 24, it's not you who speak, but the spirit of the Father speaking through you. That when you find yourself persecuted, when you find yourself up against authorities, and this could be as much as a boss or a family member, when you find yourself in those positions, you need to stop and say, wait a minute, my father's in control. The powers that be are not. That's hard to believe sometimes when you know you could get fired. Isn't it? When you know that family-wise, it could result in in a breaking down of relationships. When you stand for Jesus, that's frightening because those powers seem pretty absolute in that moment. He's saying, guys, you need to stop. You need to think. You need to think Jesus is king. The Father is with me. The Spirit is guiding me, and I need to surrender to the Spirit. Now, why? Because you cannot show compassion and love when you're driven by fear. What does it mean to be wise as serpent? It, it means to know what other people are thinking and how, what they believe. Understand what they value. Don't be foolish, but also don't be fools. 
That's what it means to be harmless as love. It means to have character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want your character to be solid and I want you to be wise about the people you're talking to so that when you communicate the gospel, you're not walking in just to offend people. You're walking in with an attitude of compassion so that you might proclaim a message of salvation that Jesus is king through his life, death, and resurrection and he is the path to salvation. You gotta be wise as serpents. You gotta be harmless as doves. And see, in that position, we have to trust our Father, that God is in control. And there are consequences to standing for Jesus. And yet, Lord, would you allow me to be sensitive to the Spirit? You know what all of this requires? It it requires being present, being aware, being humble, knowing that whatever position I'm in, I'm not going to argue this guy into the kingdom. I'm not going to yell this guy into the kingdom. I'm going to love him into the kingdom by proclaiming what Jesus has shared with me. I've got to surrender myself to the Father. And I've got to trust him. You know, Peter talked about this. He says, you know, uh, don't allow your life, uh, don't allow your life to kind of fall apart. But instead, when you're brought before others, God is going to give you the words to say. Now, how did he, I'm kind of losing. I'm trying to find the quote in my head, but it's not there yet. You guys ever been there and you're trying to find, okay. Who's gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? That's how it is. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Instead, what? Set apart Christ as Lord. Do not fear what they fear. Do not allow fear to be your Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. And then always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. But why is a serpent harmless that do this with gentleness and respect? Keeping a clear conscience of those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. The gospel brings conflict, but we have to trust the Father. And then second, the gospel brings conflict in our relationships. And this is kind of the heart of the passage is he's telling us that as we put Jesus first, it's gonna create conflicts with the people we love. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. This happens. It's shocking to us. We couldn't imagine that taking place, but it's, it's happening throughout the world. Children will rise. Fathers will rise against children. Parents, children against their parents and be put to death. The history of the church has been a history for the most part of martyrdom. That taking up the cross for many was literal. Now we live in a culture of safety and comfort. That's why we have so many laws in Supreme Court that make sure nobody's treated ill in any way, but instead we want to be safe and comfortable. See, the gospel and the message of Christianity is contrary to our Sometimes our own values and how we pursue things. And he tells us again in verses 35 through 36. He says, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be in your own household. He says, you've got to hate your father. What does that mean? It means that your allegiance to Jesus has to be so strong that all other allegiances look like hate. Does that make sense? Your allegiance to Jesus is so primary that your love for your parents and your children, it seems like hate. And that's gonna create conflict in the relationships that are closest to us. You know, and in Jesus' day, there was nothing more important than family. That's how the whole structure of Jerusalem, the whole structure of Israel was around family. You'd take care of your parents. And your family was the strength of the tribe. Because you had other tribes that were against you, you want to make sure your community, your tribe, your village is strongest. The way you're going to do this is by staying together. Jesus says, when I come in and I'm your Lord, you're going to start doing money differently. And you know what money does? 
creates conflicts, doesn't it? Because Jesus is now my Lord, I'm gonna start doing money differently and the people in your house are gonna say, wait, 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 wait. He's not my Lord. He's not my God. Sex. Every culture have a view of sex. What happens when Jesus is Lord? <laughs> Uh-oh, conflict. Now, we don't start with sex and talking about sex. We talk about Jesus, and that's why, guys, the reason I do sex differently is I believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, and he's my Savior and my Lord, and he wants me to flourish. Often, what do we do? We just say, hey, guys, you're doing it wrong. No, we gotta say, this is the good news of the gospel. Christ is Lord, and under his lordship, we flourish. It's gonna create conflicts. It's gonna create conflicts in your workplace, relationships. When that boss or, or somebody tells you to do something, you're like, listen, I, I, I can't go there. Let me ask you a question. What are you gonna set apart as Lord? When you're asked to compromise, what's gonna be Lord of your life? Is it Jesus as king or will it be my career as king? Those are difficult decisions. And he's warning us, guys, as you face these challenges, recognize I'm still with you. Watch this in verse 24. He says in verse 24, a disciple's not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It's enough Notice, it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. What's he telling us? If you're gonna be rejected, make sure it's because your character looks like me. There's a book that I read actually during kind of the election period when anything was getting heated. It's by this guy, uh, Eugene Cho. And the reason I read it at first was simply the title because it said, thou shall not be a jerk. <laughs> How Christians engage in politics. And that just had me. I'm like, okay, I'm interested. But what's he telling us? If we're going to be rejected, let us make sure we're, we're rejected because we look like Christ and we talk like Christ and we live like Christ and we speak like Christ because you know what? We're ambassadors for Christ. And to be an ambassador means we both share the message of the gospel, but here's the harder part, I think. It's, it's the method of the gospel. I can share the message and be a jerk. <laughs> you going to hell? You people right there, your life is a mess. You're what's wrong with this country. Hey, that's easy. I mean, judgment's easy, but you know, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, and that's not me. My job's compassion. My job is wisdom. My job is love. Jesus is saying, as you go out into the world and you're with me, I want you to look like me. And so when persecution comes, may it be persecution because we look like Christ and we talk like Christ. See, it's going to create conflicts in our relationships because we are like our teacher. And then finally, allegiance to Jesus, and this is the biggest part, it's going to create conflicts in your heart. That's what this whole section is really about. He's telling us that when Jesus is Lord and as you engage a culture that doesn't see the Lordship as Christ as important, it's going to create conflicts in the decisions you make and what you love and what you choose and how you live. And so he says, verse 26, have no fear of them. For nothing covered will be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And what's he saying is that the gospel right now for many people, it's hidden, it's veiled. It's not clear. Jesus is Lord, that doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. But one day, as clear as it is day, he will come, riding on the clouds. The Son of Man will come to judge that which is good and that which is evil. All things will be made clear. That day is coming. And see, we have to fix our eyes on that day. And then verse 27, we gotta live as if it's that day today. Even though we're in the darkness, we gotta speak as though it's light. Do you notice that? Verse 26, seven. 
What I tell you in the dark, meaning what I've shared with you in person, say it in the light. What you have whispered, proclaim to the mountaintops. Even in the face of persecution, we have to be bold. Because, see, we have a different vision of life. When Jesus is Lord, your values shift, which means what's most important to you is going to change. And so you're willing to sacrifice prestige, money. You're willing to sacrifice, even in this case, your life. If it means valuing Jesus, verse 28, and this is a challenging verse, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So he's saying, what is the worst that people can do to us? Now it's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, what would happen to Jesus was kind of, I don't want to go that direction. But see, the only thing they can take ultimately is your life. They cannot touch your soul. And Jesus is not dividing us into body and soul. He's just saying there's something more important, there's something more about you than simply this life. And here's a misnomer. Satan is not in charge of hell. He's not Lord. It's not like there's heaven and hell and they're like battling and they're equals. No, no. God never created hell for human beings. You know that? It's never destined for us. It was, it was for the angels. It was for the rebellion. It was for Satan himself. And so what, what is hell? Hell is where God is not central. And see, what hell is an eternity of those who do not want to put God at the center. And see, if God's not the center, you know what happens? It's called disintegration. You fall apart. You fall apart socially. You fall apart emotionally, spiritually, because see, if God's not the center and you're created for God, God's what holds things together. Heaven is just simply where God is central. Hell is where God is not. And he's saying, God is the one who's protecting the most important thing about you, your soul. Now, that's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging when our life is threatened, when our values are threatened, when our families are threatened, when our money is threatened. That's, it's frightening. And so what he's telling us is when persecution comes, we have to stop and say, what's the story I'm living out of? Is it the story that Jason's in control and he's gonna manipulate these people to get out of this situation? You know what fear is gonna do? It's gonna lead to manipulation, deceit. It's not gonna result in the fruit of the spirit. See, what I've gotta do in moments of persecution is say, wait a minute, the father's in control. I've got to set apart Christ as Lord, and then I've got to say, Spirit, you've got to guide me right now. You know, and sometimes when the Spirit guides you, there's times where the Spirit guided me, and I, I didn't say anything because I was being as wise as the serpent. There are times where that's exactly what the Spirit has, but there's other times where he says, I want you to be bold, but I want you to do that with gentleness and respect. Because see, here's the reality. No matter what we go through, Jesus ends with this picture that he wants to captivate our hearts. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. And so fear not, therefore, because you are of more value than sparrows, saying, I know what's going on. You're not alone. Because see, as you go through challenges, it can feel pretty isolating. It can feel as if it's up to me. But see, that's what it means to walk in the flesh, is to walk in my abilities, my powers, my resources, to live for Christ means we gotta die to self and live for the spirit. You know what that requires is repentance. And if you haven't learned, repentance brings conflict. <laughs> Do you know why repentance brings conflict? Because repentance is saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, I'm worried. I I'm concerned. Lord, I'm valuing the wrong things. Lord, I'm wrong. And I don't have the power to overcome what I'm facing. You know, one of the reasons we're not a good witness is because we're not relying on the resources God's given us. 
to say, Father, I can't in this moment. I, I can't overcome what I'm facing. I don't wanna allow anger to win in this moment. I don't wanna allow hate to win in this moment. Father, I don't wanna allow fear to win in this moment. I want your spirit to overwhelm me. And so you know what happens the more you do that? Now, the first time it may just feel awkward and say, well, I blew that. And maybe you did. That's okay. Because what happens the third time when you surrender to the spirit and put the father and the fourth time and the fifth time and the sixth time? The power of God and the spirit begins to work in your life and you start to become wise to know when to say what to say. And you start to represent Jesus and what you say and what you do because you're surrendered to the spirit. You're not given over to emotion and fear because what does our culture want? What do politics want? We want fear, don't we? Fear gets money moving. Fear gets people voting. Fear works. Perfect love drives out fear. Jesus didn't come in fear. Jesus came in grace and in truth. And, and why was he rejected? Why did they call him Beelzebub? Why was he alone? Why was he cast out? See, Jesus was cast out so that we would not. That what he received was our rebellion on himself. That the father rejected Jesus. Jesus was cast out so that when we go through moments of difficulty, we may know with certain confidence that God's with us. Because if he did not spare his own son, why would he not also with us be alongside us? It gives us courage. It gives us courage to know that he's with us, he's guiding us. And God, listen, this is his story. It's not yours. You're not the hero. Your job is to keep your eyes on the hero and allow the spirit of that hero to work through you. Not to allow fear, but instead to be so overcome by who he is and what he's done for you that allows you to navigate life with a totally different set of wisdom, set of eyes, and set of values. Jesus is in control. Sometimes we don't know why certain things happen, but the gospel and Jesus' resurrection tells us what it cannot mean, and it cannot mean that God doesn't love us and that he is not with us. Because if he was willing to go to the cross for us, then he is certainly with us when we walk through the challenges of life. Let me pray for us. Father, as we receive this message and probably today sit in relative comfort, maybe it's relative comfort because we're not stepping out in courage, believing that the gospel is a message of salvation, that there is one way, one truth, one life. It comes through Jesus. And Jesus, if you're king, there can't be alternate paths to that kingdom. And so, Lord, the first thing we need to do is maybe just acknowledge, Jesus, you are king. And I thank you that your kingdom showed up in my life, not primarily just in judgment, but you took your, my judgment upon yourself. And through compassion and grace, Father, you have made me new so that I can represent a message of truth and a message of hope and a message of light in a world of darkness. And yet, Father, we engage so often with people who, are, who may hate that message. They may misrepresent that message. Help us, Lord, not to see through the lens of just us being in control, but rather the reality that, Father, you're at work. And even in the anger or the hatred of another human being, the Spirit of God could be calling that person. We wanna stand in line with what you're doing, Father, so that the truth of the gospel might truly be a power unto salvation for all who believe. Guide us, Father, help us in Jesus' name.